you're listening to Thinking Off Piste, a podcast for adventurers. We share inspiring stories from professional mountaineers, skiers, boarders, bikers, climbers, and hikers who have gone against the grain, abandoned their comfort zone, and found success through their dare to be different attitude. Thinking Off Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass. Our guest today is the first person in the world to cycle to the South Pole from the edge of Antarctica. And in the process, she also set the human-powered speed record. It's Maria Leistam Edi. Maria, first of all, congratulations for being the first person in the world to cycle to the South Pole. And in the process, you also set the human-powered speed record, didn't you? Yeah, that was right. In fact, I didn't know um, until I got home, really, that I set the human-powered speed record as well. So that was a... An added bonus, really. What a massive bonus as well. And that was like right on top of Christmas time-ish, wasn't it? Yeah, in fact, what are we on now? We're the 15th of December. So uh, in two days' time, I would be starting the journey seven years ago. So um, it's quite timely doing this interview now. Yeah, and um, yesterday was um, the day that Amazon, who was the first person to get to the South Pole, arrived at the South Pole. So... uh, yeah, it's quite a lot kind of going on in the Antarctic world at this time of year. So tell me, how did you first get into endurance-related sport and adventure training? Um, well, I think definitely at university, I joined the officer training corps, part of the Territorial Army. And um, there I, I um, was exposed to a lot of, you know, adventure and army training. So I spent lots of time out um, in the hills in Dartmoor and Exmoor and, and all over the country, actually. We went as far as Scotland doing training. Um, and so I think, you know, I met a lot of really adventurous people. So it kind of triggered that spark of let's go out and let's go get wet and muddy and tired and let's go and see if we can run all night and things like yeah. that. So, yeah, I, I think I put it down to the off the training course. That's amazing. So was that like a sports society at uni or is that, um, was it part of the programme? No, it's like, training the next generation of officers basically so they try and target university students that's really cool when I was a kid I did air cadets and I absolutely loved it for the same reason they send you out on like obstacle courses um yeah I wish I kept it up it's one of those ones I'd like kind of sort of dropped off but looking back on it it was probably my peak fitness Oh no, and you make and you make some brilliant friends as well because you're in sort of situations that you just wouldn't normally be in. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it was really good. <laughs> so, what do you love about it the most? Um, well, just all the you know the adventure opportunities, really. Um, and I think like the friendships I've got, you know, made my best friends through the officer training corps, definitely. But the other bonus is also that it was only forty p for a gin and tonic in the officers' mess. So when you're at university. That is like a real bonus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but surely with so much in, like endurance training and sort of high impact cardio, you'd get drunk really fast as well. <laughs> Absolutely. When you're 18, for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did you grow up with a sort of active adventurous lifestyle before uni? Um, very active, definitely. My, um, I, I grew up on farms and uh, my parents always had us out. We were always riding horses um and you know just out playing in mud really but I didn't do any actual sport um you know like running or cycling or kayaking or anything like that before university 
um, that all started later on. So, but my parents are very outdoorsy people. You know, you get up in the morning and you don't stay in the house. You go out. And that's just, yeah. and you know, that's what I do with my girls now. We're outside as much as possible. Amazing. So take me back to your world at home right now. So the whole family kind of uh, adventurers per se. Um, yeah. So my, my youngest is three and um, she's crazy. She's, her favourite her favorite film is Pippi Longstocking. So that's Amazing. all about this little girl that's basically lives at home without parents and like jumps on the roof and hangs upside down and all sorts of things. So she's constantly mim- mimicking that and is out kind of causing havoc. That's so <laughs> and, funny. Uh, but my five-year-old's actually very sensible. So if any, oh, and, and my three-year-old's also said that she wants to live on the moon. So. Oh, that's so cute. I love that. <laughs> I don't know if it's to get away from me or actually just because she wants to live on the moon. That's her own adventure for, for future time. Do you know what they want to be when they're older? Um, well, I mean, all girls probably say they want to be ballerinas, but they've just got ballet, so they're basically to be ballerinas. Yeah. That's so funny. They're still that a bit young mine. to know, I think. Yeah. And how about you? Who's your role model? What do you draw inspiration from? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I've been so fortunate to have a really really fantastic parents both my mother and my father have been incredible uh, like my mother's the most caring kind person in the world and that's one thing I value hugely um, and my father's sort of super practical nothing is ever a problem he can fix it kind of thing so um, you know I've, I've learned a lot from them and and I always ask her opinion on things but when it yeah. comes to the South Pole um, I looked very much at Amazon, I mentioned him earlier. Um, we hear all about Scott and how he died of terrible death and all the stuff that he did, but we never actually hear about Amazon. He was actually, you know, the first to get there. He was the winner out of that race and he actually executed the whole thing perfectly. So, you know, I really focused on what it was he did and how he did it and the training and it, all that kind of thing. So he's definitely been one of my inspirations. And why did you sort of, what inspired you to go to the South Pole? Why the South over the North Pole? Oh, I've always had a fascination of the South Pole. I think even since I was young and I was looking at my globe and, uh, you know, I could see this continent at the bottom where the stem joined the globe. And, you know, I was like, what is it? You know, I wonder what's there. Is that is that part of Earth or not? And, you know, I've, as I've grown up, I've always just been fascinated by the place. And, and it was during um, a trip to New Zealand where I was cycling the length of the country. And um, I was basically, I was getting very cycle fit. Um, and I was loving the sport and I was realizing I was actually quite good at cycling. Um, and then I just went into an, an internet cafe one evening and I just typed in, I went, has anyone cycled to the South Pole? And there was no record of anyone <laughs> even having attempted or thought of it. And I just left that internet cafe. I remember it still, it was attached to like a, a, a garret, a petrol station. And I came out of it and I just thought, I am going to cycle to the South Pole. So, you know, it was all a bit random, but... <laughs> Yeah, and remind me, what was the total distance you cycled? Um, so it was um, just under 650 kilometres. That's insane. And you so, did that journey purely using manpower alone, didn't you? Yeah, oh, 100%. I cycled the whole way, yeah. yeah. And how long did it take you overall? So it was 10 days, 14 hours and 56 minutes. That's <laughs> I had absolutely to record amazing. It to make sure. I was just going to say, in terms of um, like human power travel in Antarctica, if you're getting kind of 50 kilometers a day, that's like a really, really big day. And 
some days I managed to get sort of 85 kilometers. So it just sort wow. of went to prove that actually cycling can be really, really efficient. Um, yeah, in mate, Antarctica. yeah. So it was all about sort of showing that um, cycling is a viable means of human powered travel in Antarctica. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and can I ask about the wildlife and the nature that you saw? Oh, nothing. <laughs> nothing no, at all. really? Wow. No, well, no, I mean, all of the, the animals, like the penguins and the birds and everything, they obviously live around the coast of Antarctica. Yeah. Um, because I was cycling in to the centre of Antarctica, the South Pole, there was nothing there. And I remember so well when I um, touched down on the way back in South America and straight away I was like, oh, my God, there's birds in the sky. And <laughs> you know, there's like a smell. And there's like, because I hadn't smelt anything apart from myself <laughs> for so long. And there was no wildlife, there was nothing at all. So it was a, it was a really surreal experience, like really just, yeah, desolate experience it is a desert after all so I suppose you'd have to expect that (laughs) quite often you think it's snowing in Antarctica but actually it's just blowing the snow around oh Um, that makes sense and it's yeah and it's a it is it is classed as a desert because there's such little you know rain or snowfall out there yeah so take me back to the beginning your journey began on the central Siberian plateau with a training race why did you begin training with this race well I mean it was it was a, it was actually a race um, that I'd found online, um, and I heard this is so. This was back in when was this? It was I did the race in 2012, so it was probably middle late 2011, and I found out about this, and I thought it's a perfect opportunity to test cycling on snow and ice on my own in some horrific conditions. And basically that's what I was looking for because I wanted to test everything. Um, and when I got out there, um, it was a real, you know, it really was a challenge because, um, so there was 30 people that started the race and out of those 30, only eight of us finished it. Um, there were people that had fallen through the ice had succumbed to frostbite, hypothermia, one team even burned their tent down. It was, it was quite a disaster of a race. It was never, ever run again. Um, but I remember at night, I would I'd pitch my tent on the ice and um, I'd lie there and I could just hear the ice cracking underneath my tent. And I could hear the wolves howling in the mountains around me. And it was, you know, it was the perfect experience to actually have to go, can I cope with this? You know, do I know what I'm doing? And have I got the right kit? Have I got the right skills? Um, and more, most importantly, is the bike the right bike for the job and I went there just with a normal normal mountain bike with studs in the tires and I soon learned that actually is totally not the way to go if you're in deep snow and and um yeah and and crosswind conditions things like that is so that's That's where where the polar cycle all came from so (laughs) what were you thinking and feeling in moments like that when you could sort of hear the ice cracking and the wolves like howling did it at all put you off doing your solo expedition I, I think I I really thrive on a bit of fear. I really thrive on it. And um, it's really strange. It's kind of like a switch in the back of my head that just goes, right, it's one chance now. And I have to think really clearly and I have to do things logically. I need to do them slowly, but with some kind of, you know, speed. Um, And I need to just be really focused because, you know, it's, it's make or break situation. And it's, it almost the whole world slows down around me in those situations. Um, 
And it's amazing. I mean, you wouldn't get that feeling back home just doing normal things. You have to put yourself in those situations. So, um, really yeah, good. I actually yeah. really thrive on it. When, like, I've, I've noticed if there is a crisis, I manage to really have a level head and sort things out. So of your learnings, what adaptions to your bike were necessary? Well, I mean, I put that one in the shed and um, I, <laughs> I was working with a company called Chorus Titanium Bikes at the time. And uh, we came up with a concept that actually we needed to have more stability. So probably three or four wheels we were looking at at the time. Um, I need to be able to carry all of my weight. So it's got to have some weight bearing capability. You can't just have panniers because I'd be carrying 50, 60, 70 kilograms worth of kit with me. Um, and also I need to be in a, in a, in a position that I'm comfortable in, that I can cycle like all day, every day with like huge clothes on as well, yeah. you know, sitting on a saddle with like big, oh, it's just not very, not very comfortable. <laughs> um, and then we actually approached a company down in Cornwall called Inspired Cycle Engineering. And um, they actually, they loved the idea. I kind of went, we went for a meeting and I sort of explained the project. And uh, they kind of looked at me as if I was a bit bonkers that went, we're on, kind of thing. we're on board. So um, with them, we, we created the Polar Cycle, um, which is a beast of a machine. It's about two meters long and about a meter wide. But um, I, um, I can carry, well, in fact, during my training, I actually cycled up some sand dunes with a 90 kilogram guy on the back of it. So wow. it definitely <laughs> passed the weight bearing thing. Um, all of the gears as well, I had super, super low gears so I could be traveling at kind of, you know, 0.1 of a kilometer for an hour whilst my feet were still, you know, turning quite quickly. So, um, yeah, it was it, it was good. We, we came up with the, the right machine for the job. And there's, there was a lot of accountability on, on sort of you being out there by yourself. Were you able to repair it if something went wrong? Yeah, I carried, um, I had about eight kilograms worth of kind of repair kit um so the things that could have gone wrong were obviously the tires the chain um things could have frozen up joints could have frozen so um I was very lucky actually I didn't really have any problems at all I had a bit of a squeaky chain at one stage but I pulled some of the beef fat out of the back my snack bag and I rubbed it on it and it solved the problem which I was like genius that's so funny Um, that's a classic example of thinking on your feet as well Exactly. Uh, and um, in fact, my tyres did lose pressure as I was climbing up onto the polar plateau. So, um, but that was just a case of having to pump them up. But I had like thick tyres. They were almost five inch wide tyres. Wow. And a, this tiny little hand pump. So I was there for about 40 minutes kind of trying to get the get the tyre back up. You had a really good quote in your documentary where you're saying you needed an upper body workout. And that was perfect oh, for it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was it. Um, how about your personal preparation? How strict was your training regime? Oh, I was, you know, when I've got a girl, I become really strict um, with myself. When I haven't got a girl, I'm sort of the laziest person in the world and I'll just sit on the sofa all day long. Um, but um, yeah, I was um, up at sort of 4.35 every morning. I was doing about three hours. So I used to do this um, deprivation training. So I'd get out of bed. I'd get straight on the polar cycle and, or, or on my bike um, and go out and cycle for about three hours without food, without water, without anything at all, because I wanted wow. to deprive my body so that it would get used to it in case I did 
run out of food or something went badly wrong that I knew I would be able to keep going. Yeah, and your body was prepared for that. Yeah, so I tend to do my endurance stuff in the morning. Weekends, I'd go off for sort of 12 hours and just, you know, whether it's run up a hill or go and cycle somewhere. So I wasn't always cycling. I was really, you know, mixing it up and doing lots of um, short and sharp, high-intensity training in the evenings as well, uh, you know, to get really work the the heart and and keep that that side of the, the fitness going as well. And before you set out to the South Pole, what was your biggest worry? Oh my gosh, well, would I make it? I mean, I had absolutely no idea. It was, it'd never been done before. Um, in fact, the year before I went out, somebody had attempted to do it, but they'd, they'd failed at it. They'd got, I think, 100 kilometers in and, and couldn't go any further. Um, I had no idea what I was about to tackle, you know, it, it, I didn't know if it would take me 10 days, 20 days, 50 days or 60 days. You know, I, I just did not know. I didn't know if I had the right kit. I didn't, I just didn't know because I've not been to Antarctica. Antarctica is a completely different place to Siberia or, you know, anywhere else in the world. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I just had to go with the fact that I had really done my homework. I'd really done my training. I had the best team around me that have helped me get to this point and I just needed to get on that polar cycle and start cycling and it all came down to the fact that all I had to do day after day was keep the pedals turning and as long as I did that I'd get one meter closer and one meter closer so yeah I just I was kind of focused I was I was panicking but at the same time I was like not allowing that panic out really. And it's amazing that you actually did the trip and went there and broke this record without even having been to the place before as something to fall back on in your mind. That's really impressive. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so you set off in December and how did you pick your route? So I'd, um, yeah, I'd looked at all the options. Um, Hercules Inlet is the route that 95% of expeditions will start from when people ski to the South Pole, I'll go from Hercules Inlet. Um, there's a few other options there. So the, the, the idea of the record is all about from the edge of the Antarctic continent to the South Pole. So I could have gone, you know, anywhere from the edge yeah. to the South Pole. I think because I've been reading a lot about Scott and Amazon, I've learned quite a bit about the other side of Antarctica where the Trans-Antarctic Mountain Range are. And, um, and, and I actually got in contact with some scientists from the McMurdo station, which is based down on the Ross ice shelf. And I started chatting to them, you know, about what the conditions were like out there. And, and they informed me that back in 2003, they'd started to transport fuel overland to the South Pole as opposed to flying it to the South Pole station. And so I sort of quizzed them about, you know, where do they go and how do they go? And they told me about this route called the Leverett Glacier. So I was like, well, you know, if it's good enough for them, maybe that could be a really good route. And, it's a shorter route than the Hercules Inlet, but I have to climb up the Transantarctic mountain range, which, wow. is, which was a 3,000 meter mountain range. So Typical, there was yeah, like pros sure. and there was cons to it. And um, but it was absolutely the right right route to go. Definitely. Amazing. Because the, that glacier, you reached gradients of almost 25%. Yeah, on it. it was quite, quite horrific, really. I had <laughs> brakes on the polar cycle on all three wheels. 
Yeah, um, and then so. I would sort of brace my feet like this as well to stop it going backwards when I needed to have a break. But I soon found if I went into that brace position and locked out my legs, I found it really difficult then to kind of like okay. keep going. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it was it was it was almost like a like a step like this. It wasn't sort of just twenty five the whole way up. It wasn't ninety kilometers or twenty five. It would kind of have a section of twenty five that would level off a bit and a bit more. And, and then sometimes the the, the um, the angle would change. So I was kind of cycling along at one stage and uh, I'm thinking, oh my God, the polar cycle is just going to fall over and roll down the glacier. So I'd like move all the weight from one side to the other and lean over the wheel here to try and keep it flat. So, you know, it was, it was, it was quite a challenge. And actually the visibility on the two days that I was the top, top part of the glacier was zero. And I was really pleased by that because otherwise I would have just kind of looked at it and, panicked but because I couldn't see it I just had to focus on kind of what was right in front of me and you know I could hear avalanches falling down the side of the mountain and everything so it was oh I'm pleased I didn't actually see them. That's really scary how are you coping with this like mentally I guess you're just focusing on what your body was doing. Yeah I, I had done quite a lot of this I guess like mental training for it as well um, and I I I, I developed a technique basically I said okay draw a circle around me and the polar cycle and everything that's in it I can control I can look off I can feed myself I can change my clothing I can pedal I can look after the polar cycle anything outside I have no control about so just leave it be and don't think about it and that's basically all I did the whole way it was just like me and my circle I love that so. that's a really really good sort of coping mechanism to do it like for a way of sort of getting through it so can you take yeah. me back to the moment you reached the top of the glacier how did you feel oh I had worked so hard oh my gosh I was absolutely <laughs> exhausted I remember pitching my tent right at the top of it and it was um what was that I would have been like the fourth yeah the fourth time I'd pitched the tent and I kind of climbed into the tent and I was just like oh my gosh I'm completely completely exhausted and um I slept the night and because I had, I had a knee injury, you see, um, from many, many years of cycling. And then in Siberia, I'd fallen off the bike so many times. I'd sort of chipped it a bit and I'd cracked my elbow and all sorts of problems, but I had quite a knee problem and it was starting to, starting to come back and it was swollen like a balloon as well. Um, oh, and then horrible. I was thinking, oh, but I'm on the, yeah, but I was thinking, you know, I'm on the polar plateau now, so it's not, you know, it's pretty straight. I mean, it's a gentle climb the whole way, but you don't, it's negligible, you know, you don't really notice you're climbing. But um, the next morning I got up and the, it had been quite a gale and, uh, you know, the snow was like really deep and, and I was cycling along and I was just like, oh, this is horrifically painful. And I put a lot of focus and my attention and training on what I thought was the crux of the expedition, which was the mountains. Yeah. But then actually this was actually now the crux now right now it was getting on that polar plateau and then dealing with another you know 450 500 kilometers in deep snow and um yeah and, and I really started to struggle and it was yeah it was hard I think that's when I needed this technique even more so of uh, mm. just focus to keep the pedal yeah. turning so so was there a moment you were, thought maybe you couldn't continue no, I definitely had some moments where I was like, can I do it? Can I do it? Oh, I don't know if I can do it. But um, no, I, I just I just pushed through and kept going. At one stage, I did decide, though, I, I would get rid of some of the weight from the polar cycle because I was carrying all my kit with me. 
and um, the truck that had dropped me at the at the start, I was able to radio them and get them to pick it up. Um, oh, good. That's lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which it was for me, it was like quite a disappointment because I wanted to do it all completely self-supported. And up until then I had been, but, um, you know, I just didn't know whether the conditions would stay as they were and how my knee was going to fare and whether, it could, you know, if I hadn't have taken that decision, maybe I wouldn't have even got to the South Pole. So at least I was able to still keep cycling to the South Pole. So, In terms of keeping your strength up, how much sleep were you averaging a night? Well, um, so I'd probably cycle around 17 hours um, and then it would take me about two hours to get the tent, to, by the time I stopped, to get the tent up, um, to melt snow and ice, to make water, to rehydrate my food, to deal with all my injuries and everything. And so I probably had a two, two or three hours a night, but I don't think much of that was sleeping. A lot of it was sort of lying there going, oh my God, I'm in Antarctica in a tent yeah. on my own. <laughs> um, That's but amazing. it was fine. You know, I kind of, um, I'm quite good with sleep deprivation really. So. And were you ever scared that you'd lose your bike in the conditions whilst you were camped out? <laughs> yeah. In fact, I've got this hilarious photograph of like the tent and then I've tied the polar cycle to it. And when I give talks, I, I, I joke that I was where I was lying in my tent. And I was really worried somebody would come and pinch the polar cycle. Of course, there's nobody in Antarctica. So, That's so funny. Um, but no, I mainly, mainly did that because the, the winds can be so strong. They could literally pick a tent up with a person in it and blow it away. So um, I, I sort of, I, I tied it to the, to the polar cycle for that reason. So between sort of exhaustion, losing a lot of body liquid and weight from exercising and being exposed to such sub temperatures, can you tell me about what was happening to your body? Were there any sort of significant changes to your weight or anything? Not really. Luckily, as women, um, we're kind of made for endurance because our bodies are so intelligent. They, They tend to be able to preserve themselves really well, which for people trying to lose weight is awful. Unfortunately, it's just who we are. Um, I mean, at the end of it, I lost about 8% of my body weight, which is not a lot. Most guys would lose at least 20, if not more, percent. Wow. Um, you know, you do the before and after shot of the of the abs, you know, as a woman and then as a man and the guy, you know, you know, they're skin and bone, whereas we're still like, well, we're fine. We could have continued for quite a lot longer. So, um, women. so I mean... I, I did lose weight. I toned up, certainly. Um, but, you know, mainly I just found myself getting stronger and stronger, um, apart from the injury. You know, the actual physical muscles um, were really good and, and in good condition. So Good. And how much did you need to eat to keep your energy up? So I took about, I think it was about four and a half thousand calories a day, um, which is about double what we would eat at home. So it's not a massive amount. Um, so in the morning I would have I, all the food that I ate was freeze dried. So it was in little pouches. And the reason we have these is because um, that the calorie to weight ratio is really, really good. So, you know, for about 180 grams, I could get 800 calories or so. So I'd have porridge in the morning um, and then lunchtime it was just sort of snacks. I had like a little snack bag on my front. Um, and in here I had a whole mixture of things like jelly beans and chocolate. Um, I'm half Swedish, so I had salty licorice. Um, I also had some beef fat and some bultong mixed <sighs> in and some pretzels and That's all great. sorts it's of like like random bag. stuff. But 
Yeah, it was it was a complete mixture. I bet your girls wanted one too. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And then in the evening, I'd have um, I'd have like a soup again, a freeze dried soup, and then I'd have maybe a spaghetti bolognese or a, a chicken korma or something like that. So and a Yum. dessert, in fact, chocolate pudding dessert. So yeah, I definitely didn't go hungry. <laughs> Although I found as I got onto the polar plateau. The, the, um, the, I suffered quite a bit with altitude sickness and because it's up at 3,000 metres, I was not able to eat as much. So actually, the last two days, I probably ate about 1,000 calories a day only because I just couldn't stomach it. Oh, wow. That's quite a so, drop. Um, yeah. How did you deal with the change of uh, brought on from altitude sickness? Um, oh, I just, I mean, I did take some paracetamol and things. I just started to get a headache and just felt felt a little bit lethargic and um yeah. I don't know it feels it feels like the, the the air is just pressing on you a little bit and I had not prepared for it really because I didn't think you know 3,000 meters I thought oh, I'd be absolutely fine but um I was later told that because because of the position on the earth that Antarctica is the effects of altitude are probably more like five or six hundred meters, where it's three hundred. Oh, so, yeah, wow. I did struggle with it, and I know from his, from having climbed some mount like Mont Blanc and some other mountains that I don't fare too well in altitude at all. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the best finish. I remember getting there and going, "Let's get out of here." <laughs> <laughs> what effect did that have on your ability to navigate? Navigation was fine. It was basically due south. It was due south the whole way, um, and I had a GPS with me, and um, yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't intricate navigating at all. It was it was pretty straightforward. Um, have you ever hallucinated from altitude? Um, from sleep deprivation, yes, I have. Um, I've seen all sorts of sort of you know when I've been doing my adventure racing, I've seen all sorts of monsters in the hedges and wow. <laughs> That's crazy. You know, things that not definitely not there. So. <laughs> but no, I was okay in Antarctica, actually. And to treat it, they say you should sort of stop and rest, not go higher and not exercise. So that was completely off the cards for what you were trying to do. Did that, like, did that have any sort of effect on you, like mentally, or were you able to just, like, push through? No, I think I've, I've always done this sort of thing, like, with the adventure racing. I do that kind of nonstop for six days. I might get three hours sleep in six days um, and you know so I'm pretty used to it. <laughs> um, what was the like the scenario if you had to do like a rescue out there how long would it take for somebody to reach you? Well I mean you um, every 24 hours we did um, like a, a sit rep um, and an update on position uh, where I was how I was doing and where I was due to be in the next 24 hours so um, there are planes in Antarctica, so you know I had um, search and rescue insurance with ALE, the company that are out there. Um, but it's all completely weather dependent. So you know, if, if the weather had been fine, they would have been able to get a plane to me in a, in a few hours. Um, but I mean, if the weather's really bad, it could be a month. You know, it, it, if they can't fly. So yeah, it's, it's quite. It can be quite dangerous. Though. Yeah. Take me back to Christmas Day because you were travelling over it, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was out there. It was the first Christmas in 35 years that I hadn't been with my family. So um, it was kind of quite emotional. But, you know, I'd chosen to do this. And How are you feeling? Um, I don't know. I just, there's a bit too much hype around Christmas, I think, at the moment. And 
it was quite nice to just be out there and, and escape it all. But, you know, I really, I didn't have my children at that time, of course. So, um, you know, I didn't have children, but my sister's two, um, she had a little boy and a little girl who I was very, very close to. So I had a little photograph of them in my pocket. So I would look at them regularly and, you know, I kind of wondered what they'd be doing and whether they'd opened all their Christmas presents and eaten all their chocolate yet. So, <laughs> so what do you do to unwind and switch off from the outdoor world? Well, I mean, now I've got two girls, so um, unwinding and switching off is not really an option as most mothers out there will know. Um, but we've got a family dog that we take walking a lot. That's lovely just to, you know, go for walks in the forest with the girls and the dog. And yeah, that's really lovely. Um, I do, I've started to read a bit more. I never, ever used to read. I just never used to read, but I do quite enjoy that now. So. so I also wanted to take a minute to talk about some of your other achievements too, because alongside obviously being a mum and your expeditions, you've also released a book and a film. You're a keynote speaker and you're the founder of an adventure company. So uh, during my training, ITV uh, Wales um, were following me and, and, and capturing a lot of that for the documentary. Um, and then I did some filming out in Iceland and then, of course, in Antarctica, which I gave to them. And then we created the, the White Ice Cycle documentary, which is um, available on my website. Oh, and also on Amazon Prime. Um, and then, yeah, it took, in fact, it took me a long time to get my, that was actually out three weeks after I returned. So that was out straight away. But then my book took me a long time to actually put that into paper. And, um, and it was actually when I had my first daughter, I remember being up most nights feeding her as mothers do. And I thought this is a perfect time to start writing. And I was on my iPad, right, started to write the books. So I had two girls, sort of two, a year and a half each of sort of feeding them all night. And uh, so that got my book <laughs> written, which was good. So, um, yeah, we launched that just a couple of years ago. And that's on Amazon Prime as well, just cycling to the South Pole. And that's kind of the whole story of, you know, the four years of training and, you know, all of that as well. Um, and I talked quite a bit about the late Baikal in Siberia, um, which, which was just the most incredible race ever. And then uh, the, the second half is all about the South Pole. So, yeah, it was, it was really fun to do. And I've got, to, I've got to thank my mother because she's a journalist. And she basically, I wrote the facts down. She turned it into something nice to read. So What a great yeah, I collaboration. Have, I, I know, I'm so lucky. <laughs> she's brilliant. <laughs> so touching on your keynote and after dinner speaking, what other key things you talk about in your speeches? So I did touch about touch upon um the adventure racing um mainly because you know it's a team sport there and i think in terms of companies they're very interested to see you know team collaboration and and how you know team dynamics works and how you can you know get a whole team from the start of a 600 kilometer course to the finish of one without major disputes or big problems and things happening like that so um, goal setting is a big thing that I talk, that I focus on um, a lot when I go to schools as well and universities when I speak speak to them as well. Um, you know, just the importance of going out and having a goal. You know, and then yeah. like I was saying myself, if I haven't got a goal, I'm I'm terrible. You know, I have to have a goal. So yeah, no, I really enjoy doing all of that. It's good fun. Good. You must be a great mum because you're so motivational. Do these speeches sort of become bedtime stories in a way for the girls or the learnings from them? No, I, I, of course they know what I've done. And, um, 
they've seen parts of my documentary. Um, but, you know, I don't talk about it a lot because I want them to go and, you know, really explore the world themselves and find what they love and what they want to do. And I'm certainly not a pushy mum. I'm not like, you will go and cycle <laughs> to the South Pole, you know, that one's off the moon anyway. So, um, you know, they could, they could be whatever they want to do. But no, I try, I try more instead of like telling them things I just want to give them experiences so we're always out running around jumping in puddles we're riding the horse we're you know jumping over you know making little cross-country courses for them to jump over and you know just doing fun things that they love doing so good and you mentioned your you mentioned your adventure race company you're the founder of the adventure race company burn series why did you set it up after my trip to New Zealand in 2010, I um, I was really impressed by the way that the New Zealand they they basically have sport as a way of life out there. It's not you know we do this plus we do some sport in the evening. Like their whole world is kind of around being active and outdoorsy and sporty as a family. And uh, I thought that would just be brilliant to bring some of that back to the UK. And I'm based in Wales at the moment, so um, I started that up and it's been running. In fact. The year of COVID was our 10-year anniversary, so unfortunately everything was cancelled, <laughs> which I'm really gutted oh, about. Um, that's but no, it's going really, yeah, it's going really well, and um, yeah, we have a great group of people that come and do it. We have two, three hundred families that come and take part, which is fantastic. And we're going to once things return a bit more to normal, we were, we're looking at some more venues and running it a bit further afield, not just in sort of South Wales. So yeah, yeah, it's been really How- good fun. How challenging are the courses? Can anybody do it? Oh, anybody. We've had a three-year-old complete the whole course. Wow, um, that's Because it's a family, well, it's a family team effort. So, you know, it might be that mum has to carry them or dad has to lift the bike or push the ball, something like that. It doesn't matter. It's all about getting to the finish of the family in one piece. So um, we have short course options. The mini burn is suited perfectly for for families with young children. Um, but then I also organise the burn, which is for more experienced adventure races. Maybe you people have done um, triathlons or half marathons and those sorts of things that are pretty fit, um, but are looking for something a little bit different. So, and they all involve running, cycling, kayaking, and then some orienteering as well. So, yeah, it's good fun. It's different. <laughs> Good. Um, there was actually another one of your adventures that I wanted to ask you about because on this trip you were joined by a couple of companions at various like legs of the journey. Can you tell me briefly what the Welsh Top 10 is exactly? Well, again, it was just a dream of something that I came up with and I gave it a cool name. <laughs> um, no, in the year of COVID, I thought it's really important to stay close to home, but at the same time, I needed to fulfil my desire to go and get get a load of adventure so um I've done coast-to-coast races like in lots of different places um in the world I've done them in New Zealand I've done them across England and Scotland and Ireland but never in Wales so I thought it's a perfect opportunity so basically I started in Conway in North Wales and then I ran cycled and kayaked all the way to Cardiff in South Wales and it took me 60 hours um to complete and wow. um, my mother joined me for the kayak and my daughters joined me for the last five, my three-year-old's a brilliant cyclist, for the last five kilometre cycle into Cardiff Bay. And then I had a couple of friends join me en route as well in the mountains. So yeah, it was just a really fun, it was not a race, it wasn't anything official, it was just to get out and have some adventure. 
Yeah. And how did you feel about being on a boat in rapids, sort of in the kayak with your mum at the age of 72? Were you scared? Well, it was, well um, a, a little bit for her, actually. Yeah. It was pitch black. And I hadn't been on this river before, but I'd spoken to um, some people that, that knew it very well. And they'd said, yeah, you know, there's a few gentle rapids, but then make sure you get out before hell hole, which was one of the rapids. I think the great three actually what it's called? It's quite a serious. It's, it's called Hellhole. <laughs> and uh, even, you know, the first few rapids were pretty bumpy. And uh, But my mother, she's just like so cool. She just sits there and she just trusts me 100%. She'll do anything I tell her to do, basically. So yeah. I was like, if we go in, just lie on your back and get your feet up in front of you. <laughs> and she was just like, okay, that's fine. I can do that. Luckily, we didn't need to. But uh, we then got to Hellhole and we stopped right on top of it. And it was quite low water, actually. So we were able to scramble out um, on some of the rocks and, uh, and, and get out. So it all, it all ended so well. Good. And you mentioned your daughters joined you. What was it like uh, sort of traveling with them? Does it change the dynamic of the journey for you? Oh, of course. <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious. We had, it was only like five kilometers and... Uh, we had to stop because we had itchy heads, itchy bottoms. We argued who was going to cycle in front. And then my three-year-old decided she'd wanted to cycle on the wrong side of the road. So we had a massive <laughs> argument about that. That's so, <laughs> so I think funny. It took, me about, it took us about an hour, the last bit. <laughs> and I'd been, got, been on the go for 60 hours nonstop. So I was quite keen to finish. Um, in terms of what's on the horizon for you, is there any sports that you want to add to your repertoire? Oh yeah, I'm I'm definitely up for doing more. I've um this this summer actually I started a bit of stand up paddle boarding, which I've done a little bit in the future. Um, but I think it's a really cool means of travel, and you know you just get to see a little bit more than you do when you're sitting in a kayak. You're a bit higher up, and I don't know. I quite feel like that feel of being out in the ocean, and you kind of lose perception really a little bit of of what's what, and it, that's a really good sport, but. I think um, I want to do more um, cross-country and backcountry ski touring, definitely. I, I just love snow and I love the cold. And um, because my half-Swedish roots, I think, I, you know, I'm, I kind of need to get out and do that. So, yeah, I'm planning a little trip, maybe something in the Hedangnavida in uh, Norway next year. So I tried my first time or my it was my first time paddle boarding this like, summer just gone. And I absolutely loved it. It's such a nice feeling. It's cool, it's- isn't it? Yeah, uh, especially when it's absolutely freezing in the water and then you just like, because you're standing up, you just like get the sun rays. It's just so nice in a sunset as well. It's very good. Yeah. No, it's nice. <laughs> so you've tackled extreme cold. Would you venture into extreme heat like deserts? Well, you've already done a desert, but the opposite kind of desert. Um, well, I, 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 I did run the Marathon de Saab back in 2007 across the Sahara. Um, oh, the and- Sahara. Amazing. <laughs> I, I kind of learned that I don't like the heat. <laughs> okay. I guess not when you're working up a massive sweat. Um, well, exactly. Because I think the nature of all, everything I do, you know, it's physical. I want to be in cooler temperatures. So even here in the UK, if it's above, I'd say 15 degrees, it's just too hot, yeah. you know, to go out and really work hard and get a sweat on. So, yeah, I definitely like the cold. Um, and tell me, is there anything else on your bucket list that you haven't ticked off yet? Oh, oh yeah, there's always stuff. I mean, uh, towards the end of the South Pole, just 
literally before I'd got to the South Pole, but the last maybe two, three hours, I've started to dream up of my next plans. And uh, I was thinking about cycling across the Atlantic. Wow. <laughs> people go, so what? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> How do you do that? In literally some kind of pedalo thing. Um, but then I had children. And so I sort of like stopped the real wild things for the time being. But I don't know. I've quite, I'm, I mean, I'm 42 now, so I'm getting on a bit. But I reckon, you know, when I'm kind of 55, you can still do some adventure, you know, expedition endurance yeah, stuff. Yeah, for sure. So, Maybe when the girls are older and established and, you know, I might do some of that, that stuff again. But I don't know, next year I'm, I'm um, wait, I'm going to go to Kyrgyzstan with my mother and ride across the Tian Shan Mountains on horseback. That would be amazing. Well, Maria, you've been an absolute pleasure to talk to. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to chat. Thinking of Peace is brought to you by Maybe Ski a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass.